you know, and, and if you talk to these folks, you know, their regrets are almost always for the things that they were afraid to do, the mm-hmm. things that they were afraid to say, the, the things that they were afraid to go accomplish because they were afraid of rejection. Mm-hmm. And rejection is the one thing that will, you know, it steals your dreams. It takes things away from you. It, it pushes you back. And, and then when we go look at every story, like when you call Chet Holmes 72 times, we look at the stories that, that set us up and, and changed our life. They're almost always the stories where, in the face of adversity and pain and um, and hard work and and the worst of everything, rejection, you know, the greatest human fear that that exists for all of us, those stories almost always end with that one yes that came That's after right. all of the the requests, all of the rejection. You know, yes has a number, success has a number. What is going on, everybody? Thank you so much for joining yours, truly, Ryan Caligiuri, on this week's episode of Cut the Crap Podcast, where every single week I'm reading a book, condensing it down to its core golden nuggets. I'm bringing the author on the show to have a conversation about the golden nuggets, and I'm here with you every single week, just trying to save you a little bit of time and bring you some information that can spark real change in your life. So I'm excited today. We got friend of the show, Jeb Blunt. He's back on for his second episode. The first time he was on here, he was talking about his book, Fanatical Prospecting. And for all you sales junkies out there, I know you love that episode. So I couldn't wait to get Jeb back on talking about his latest release, Objections, The Art and Science of Getting Past No. So again, if you're in a sales role, if you're in marketing, if you're an entrepreneur running your own business, then this episode is definitely going to be targeted towards you. Such great takeaways, really solid energy coming from this, obviously. It's Jeb Blunt. Jeb's got tons of energy, so it was really exciting getting him on here. But this one, there's so many good takeaways from it. So get a pad and a pen ready. Get ready to take some notes down. Pad and pen, do people use that anymore? Whatever. Just take some notes down because there's going to be a lot of great takeaways from this one. So without further ado, this one is my friend Jeb Blunt on his book, Objections. We'll catch you back here at the end of the episode. Enjoy. My friend Jeb Blunt. Jeb, how you doing, man? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm doing very well. Obviously, you're a fan of the show. We've been, we've, uh, or a friend of the show. We've had you on before. And your first book for any of you out there who have not listened to it yet, we covered Jeb. Uh, this was maybe a couple months ago. We talked about his book, Fanatical Prospecting. And I'm telling you, the amount of people that have reached out to me, Jeb, and told me just how much they enjoyed that episode, how much they they enjoyed the book, they went back over it, they read it, they marked it up with highlights and notes, and how it's made an impact on their career. Like you're doing good work out there, man. So I'm just—it's such a pleasure to get you back on the show. Well, um, it's, I couldn't—I I love it. I, I thought that last podcast episode was incredible. <laughs> I, I've gone back and listened to it a couple of times myself, and I don't know what happened to us. Like you know, we were in church and we got—we uh, got you know doused, doused by the Holy Spirit or something. But it was. Uh, <laughs> It was a wild ride. Yeah, man, it was awesome. That was a good one. And, you know, this one I'm really excited about, too, because it's it's a different kind of book. So Objections, it helped me essentially rethink the idea of what an objection is to me and change the perspective to the people that I'm calling every day. And because it helped me provide this different perspective, I think it's really important to get this perspective shift in front of so many other people who, you know, might be struggling with objections in their sales. And they definitely are. So before we really get into the book, I really want to know something, and it's really because we don't often see sales champions such as yourself write books squarely about objections. It's usually reserved for a chapter or two or three in a book. So why did you feel it was necessary to write an entire book focused solely on objections? 
Well, the, the iteration of this book, the way it came about was one of my clients is the New York Mets, and they had had me come in uh, last summer for a session with their sales team. And this is a, they're a great sales team. They're, it's so much fun to watch them. They've got this wonderful sales floor. And there's, you know, they're selling season tickets to the Mets. And mm. City Field is one of the greatest baseball fields. And don't, don't, don't shoot the messenger, but it is truly one of the greatest baseball <laughs> stadiums in Major League Baseball. And I, I went there and we did this little thing called Jab Unplugged. And it's my favorite way to do training. You put a bunch of people in the room. They ask me any question off the cuff. There's no rehearsal, no slides, no anything. Cool. And we did this for, you know, three hours or so. And the after we got done, I was I went out to see a baseball game, and I'm sitting in the stadium, and it just there's just something nagging at me about the pattern, and 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 it just it dawned on me, you know, it, as I was walking out of the stadium, that the pattern really was almost all the questions that they were asking, almost everything that I was dealing with, is it started with what do I do when the person tells me no, hmm. or when I get shut down, or when the person gives me resistance. And then when I looked at all of the keynotes that I give and the trainings I give and the people who come up to me after a, a, a keynote and they ask me questions. And just yesterday I was hmm. sitting on uh, the sales floor of a company here in San Francisco and I was uh, I was with, with the SDRs. I was just observing and the, and the SDR said, well, you know, what do I do when they say this? Which was, hmm. what do I do when they tell me no here? What do they do when they mm-hmm. say they're not interested? What do they do when they say they're already doing this? <laughs> And all the questions were about no. So we started dealing with you know how to turn around objections. And this was apropos of nothing. I was just sitting listening to them, hmm. and as I was doing it, you know, they think more and more came around me, and I'm giving them these you know these ways of turning these things around, and I'm I'm really just helping with human you know human influence right. frameworks. Just you know, I'm not like teaching you some cheesy script. We're not going through you know the old school you know school Bill Franklin quotes. <laughs> I'm just saying you know the person just said no, and here's why they did that, and they're a human being. And, you know, at one point, one of the guys goes, man, you're like Yoda. <laughs> I'm, like, you know, awesome. I'm like, no, I'm not like Yoda. I just know how to talk to people. So so I wrote this book because of that, because you're exactly right. Objections, it's usually the last thing that's covered in a sales training program. You know, people are tired. They're, you know, they're in the day. But it's the number one thing that holds salespeople back is, is mm. I'm afraid of what might happen if they tell me no. And you go back to fanatical prospecting, the conversation we had about, you know, you just need to make the call. You've got to get on the telephone. Mm -hmm. If you don't prospect, you are going to fail. Mm -hmm. Well, if we go back to the number one reason why people don't prospect is they're afraid of getting rejected. They're afraid of objections. So I wrote the book and I love this book. I, I'm, when I say I love it, I'm in, I am in love with this book. I love the book. I love the way it came out. I like the way we, we put it together. It wasn't, I can't tell you there was some sort of thing that happened at the beginning where I had this epiphany on how it was going to be written. It was really a, a process, but I dig the way we, we treated objections and we did it in a format that I, I truly can tell you that no one else ever before has, has done. And that I think makes this book unique and different for the sales profession. Yeah, man, I agree. And not just cause you're on the show, but I mean, I've, I've read a lot of books on sales and especially on the topic of objections. And this is a unique book and I really love it. And there's, it obviously has a lot of experience in it. And like I said, at the very top, it helped 
me shift my perspective in terms of what I even looked at as an objective uh, or sorry, an objection. So for me, it was a really powerful book. And I know that all of you out there in Cut the Crap Podcast Nation are going to love this one. So why don't we actually just cut into the episode right now with golden nugget number one, which says that we need to change the narrative around uh, around objections. So you say that you often hear salespeople that say they need to overcome objections. They need to combat objections. And sales coaches, they teach their people rebuttals. So why is this whole narrative around objections wrong? And why is that poor advice when they give it? Well, the, the problem is just the way human beings operate. And there's a, 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 a basic psychology term called reactance, psychological reactance. And basically all that is, is that if, if, you know, if I tell you that you're wrong, you immediately disagree with me and say that you're right. Even if you're dead to rights wrong, if you're wrong and I tell you you're wrong, you're going to say, no, I'm right. And we get into an argument. And basically what happens is your inner brat, your inner three-year-old comes out and you go, nah, so the problem for salespeople is, is that we go into an objection as if it's something that we need to fight over. Hmm. So we go in and we argue, try to argue the person into believing that they're wrong. And that's not possible because you cannot argue another human being into believing that they're wrong. So, so if you if you think about it, the, the 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 natural human tendency is to immediately try to rebut, to um, you know, to to fight, to argue them out of mm-hmm. their position. But the reality is, is that the easiest, fastest way to turn around an objection is by leveraging something called a non-complementary behavior. In other words, if you say, "I'm really happy with what we're doing right now," and I say, "That's fantastic," and if you're happy, you shouldn't think about changing. Immediately, the person pull comes towards me. Because that's not what they're expecting. It disrupts their expectations, and it's and, it, and it's the opposite of what they would expect as a common human pattern. So what we what we have to first understand is that you cannot argue someone out of an objection. It doesn't make a difference if the objection is emotional or illogical or what. It doesn't matter. As a sales person, don't do that. So this rebutting and overcoming and all these things that are, are, are often taught by people who mean well but don't really understand how human beings work, um, those are the things we want to shift away from, and we want to move towards frameworks that allow us to, in the moment when we get an objection, increase the, pro- the win probability or increase the probability that when we act to turn that objection around, that the person on the other side either says yes or comes closer to the table so that we can negotiate a different outcome. Yeah, we're really hearing a lot more today than any other time that I can remember about EQ, this thing about emotional intelligence. And one of the things I really got from reading Objections was just how important emotional intelligence truly is and how so many sales professionals are coming up with this very old school style of thinking. Like you said, you know, they're they're, they're sticking to a script. They're using the Ben Franklin clothes all the time, and they're just not really paying attention to what the person is actually saying. And they're not really humanizing it. They're not listening to the person. They don't realize there's another person sitting on the end of that phone. They just look at them like a nameless prospect. And that's a problem, man. Like you don't actually care. And because their heart's on it, because they don't care, you know, they're just not engaged fully. And so for me, when I look at this and, you know, we're talking about you have to overcome, combat, rebuttal. It's like, what are you doing to actually understand the person on the end of the phone? You know, talk to them as a human being and, and be more natural. And I think that's maybe something that a lot of people are having a tough time getting their, their head around. Why is that, though, in your experience? Like, why is it that people just love to stick to the old school ways and they don't do as, as we're talking about right now? Well, it's easy. It's, it's really an easy thing to do. It's easy to, to do what's, what's natural to you and, uh, and focus on you. So mm. 
if we there's a couple of things if we back into so i wrote a book called sales eq so in, in which was focused on self-specific emotional intelligence that was the book between fanatical prospecting and this one and this book objections wouldn't have been possible without sales eq and the more than 400 research uh, papers that i read and studied on human psychology and the way we operate and work and and why that's important for salespeople. But one of the problems that we face and this is especially true for sales is that the most effective salespeople on on the spectrum of of you know human personality and communication styles are people who are lower on the empathy scale. So they're much more self-centric, mm-hmm. which is a good thing because if you're more self-centric, you're more likely to do some of the hard things that are required in sales. So you're 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 more likely to already have a level of callous when it comes to people telling you no and giving you resistance. The problem with that personality type is that that personality type is naturally self-centered, so it naturally focuses on getting as much out of the sales relationship as possible in the least amount of time with the least amount of emotional mm-hmm. investment, mm-hmm. which is not such a bad deal if you're you know, not knocking on doors and doing one call closes. I mean, if you're right. doing a transactional sale like that, emotional intelligence doesn't matter that much. Like, mm-hmm. you just knock on enough doors, people are going to tell you yes. But that's, that, that, that world of sales essentially is kind of dying off because yes. if, if you have a product that's that transactional – I can probably buy it on the website without having to get an intermediator in there yep. to help me buy it. Definitely. So, so as we shift towards more complex sales where a human, human interaction is critical and important and the salesperson really begins serving the buyer and helping the buyer, as we, as we work on deals where you're knowledge-based, so for example, I'm trying to buy a lake house right now and I'm dealing with a real estate agent and I pick this real estate agent because this person has specific knowledge of the area where I want to buy a house that other people don't have. And I can't, I can't, I can't learn everything that he knows on my own Mm -hmm. and he can go find things and talk to me. So this, this relationship that I have with this person is based on the human connection. I like him and I like what he does. And I like the fact that he's responding to my, my particular needs as a buyer. So as a salesperson, if you're in that space where you're more self-centric, what you have to do is teach yourself the ability to wake up, as you said, and listen and pay attention and be aware that you're dealing with other human beings. Now, the flip side of that is that we have a group of salespeople who tend to be higher on the empathy scale. But those folks typically are very aware of human relationships. They're good listeners. They get that. But they have a problem because they are so sensitive to rejection that they won't ask for next steps. They won't ask for appointments. They won't ask for the sale. They have a tendency to wait for the prospect or customer to do the work for them. And that doesn't happen either. So what we have to do with that group of people, people who are higher on the empathy scale, is we have to tap into their natural empathy and ability to manage their emotions and influence the emotions of their people. And we have to teach them how to manage their natural sensitivity to rejection. Mm -hmm. And instead of, and this is what happens typically in sales organizations, we teach the fear, we teach, you know, treat the fear of rejection as if it's a psychological disorder Mm -hmm. versus a biological disorder. So, so our fear of rejection as a human race is biological, it's evolutionary. Hmm. It, is, um, it was built into us because people who were able to be sensitive to where the lines were drawn in human society were the ones most likely to pass on their genes mm-hmm. and most likely to get promoted and get other things. That's a really cool 
thing oh, for yeah. us as human beings to support together. But it's really sucky in sales because in sales, you know, <laughs> the rest of your life you can you can avoid rejection and resistance and you'd be okay. But mm-hmm. in sales, you have to go out and find it, right? You're you're tasked with what and getting it. So oh, yeah. so I think when we start with you know sales specific emotional intelligence, it begins with self awareness. Mm-hmm. Self awareness is the mother of change. If you're aware of of who you are and how you respond to rejection then you're able to shift your style and become more aware of how you manage your emotions and how you influence the emotions of other people so that you you do a much better job uh, in that moment when you get an objection Mm -hmm. of managing your own disruptive emotions, rising above them and responding appropriately so that you can get the other person to say yes, which is exactly what we want to do in sales. You got it. It's one of those things, I, I find it very interesting because as we go through the book and we go through skills, you know, we focus a lot on strategies and tactics and different approaches. But when it comes down to actual self-awareness, we don't really take that seriously and the importance of self-awareness. And I really think it's one of those things, again, emotional intelligence, we have to pay special attention to. And again, you you had a book on that, The Sales EQ. And I think it's really important for us to keep that in mind as we really dive deep into objections. And you know, I really want to kind of go on something that you talked about there. You were talking about rejection a lot. And maybe I want to cover that off as gold nugget number two around understanding rejection. Because when people think about objections, objection is not rejection. But a lot of salespeople see them as forms of rejection. So when people hear things like, um, I don't don't know, I need to think about this, or I don't have time right now, or the infamous, we're not interested. Salespeople think that's rejection, but you say it's not. So tell us why. Well, there's three ways that human beings approach rejection or or see rejection. One of them is, or I guess maybe a better way, are impacted by rejection. Mm. One, One of those things is real rejection. Like, I mean, if you're in somebody's office and they tell you to get the hell out of my office, you moron, that would be rejection. Yeah, I get that, right? Rejection is, 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 the, is the out of hand discounting of you as a human being. And it is hard. It is, it is harsh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when you're prospecting, what we, you know, our last conversation about fanatical prospecting, it's more likely that you will, you will face some forms of rejection when you're prospecting because people will treat you that way especially when you're pure cold calling because you're, you know, you're a total stranger. The other way that we we are impacted by, by rejection is anticipating rejection. So that's called worry, right? So let's just say that you're a salesperson and you're a field salesperson and you go to say an industrial park and there's a lot of businesses operating the industrial park and they're all potential prospects. And you're sitting there having a hard time getting out of your car. Like you're staring at the Mm -hmm. doors and you're thinking and worrying about what might happen if, same thing if you're if you're a salesperson and you have to make phone calls mm-hmm. and prospect to people. You sit in the morning and spend 30 minutes staring at the phone. The car door weighs 10,000 pounds. The phone handle weighs 10,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. And what you're doing is is you're perceiving or, or you're anticipating that you're going to be rejected, which which creates worry, mm-hmm. which creates hesitancy, which holds you back. Right. But nothing ever happened. You're just perceiving it, and then and that's anticipated. And then there's perceived objection. And perceived objection is when someone says, "I'm I'm not interested." They tell you they're not interested. They didn't reject you. They just said, I'm not interested. But it, it feels like it's perceived as rejection. Mm. And, and the problem for us, and this is why, you know, the traditional way of teaching people to get past this is just so wrong, is we tell people, just let it roll off your back. Or, you know, it's not personal, so you shouldn't take it personal. But the problem is for, you know, for, you know, for, for salespeople and for human beings, like this is humans, 
is it is personal, mm-hmm. and it does feel like rejection. That's right. And I can argue you out of this all you all day long, but you can't reason with that. <laughs> and in the book, I go through the scientific basis for this, mm-hmm. which is very well documented, and and it is basically you know it starts with you know forty thousand years ago when our brains were formed, and we were all living you know in small groups of human beings in caves. Look, if, if you got rejected, that usually meant you got your ass kicked out of the cave. And if you got kicked out of the <laughs> cave, right. you were going to die because they didn't have Uber and they didn't have Pizza Hut apps, right? right? So you were, I mean, it was survival for real. So we grew up like this. So for a salesperson, instead of telling you, look, here's the thing, that's not rejection. I can tell you that all day long. Get, somebody telling you not interest, not rejection, it still feels that way mm-hmm. because that's how you were wired. That's so. Right. Let's just go back to the basic premise, right? If if you're so sensitive that I can't teach you how to get past I'm not interested, hmm. get out of sales, go serve coffee. Yeah. Because okay? I can't help you. Because, and there are some people like that. We call them hyper-empathic people. There are some people who just don't belong in the sales profession. There's nothing wrong with you. It is absolutely okay. <laughs> just don't try to do this job. Now, then there are some people who... They they're so they're wired to the point where they can talk to anybody anywhere anytime and they're unfazed. Mm-hmm. Most of those people don't do very well in in really complex enterprise level jobs. They do great at knocking on doors. They do great at you know selling anything where I don't have to build a relationship. Mm-hmm. But in the middle, there's all these people out there that have the competency to be in sales, that have the ability to develop emotional intelligence, but we've taught them how to deal with objections all wrong. Mm. It, it all starts, Brian, with one thing you have to ask, right? You've got to ask. You have to ask for stuff. If you ask for stuff, you're going to get an objection. That's right. And if you ask for stuff, you're going to get an objection, and that objection is going to feel like rejection. And when it feels like rejection, you're going to want to run the other way. Mm-hmm. And if you don't learn how to get past those things, you are going to fail in your job, period, in the story. That's how it is. Yeah. However, we have to understand that, that, that if the, the way the human being, the brain is wired for most people is that at all costs, I want to avoid crossing the line and being rejected, and that no matter whether it's rejection or it's just resistance, it still feels that way, then you need to, to develop some frameworks that allow you to manage your disruptive emotions like insecurity and fear and worry and eagerness and attachment. You have to be able to manage those emotions so that even though the emotions are happening because all of your emotions happen without your consent, you don't decide your emotions. Right? The only thing you decide is what you do with the emotion, right. that we give you a framework so that when you're in that moment, when you get that objection that makes you feel that way, that you can still feel that way because we can't change that. But you can change the way you respond so that you can bring the other person towards you. So it's a really simple thing. For example, if you said I'm really, really happy, just one of the easiest things to do is I say that's fantastic whenever you're getting great prices – and you're getting great service, you should never think about changing. Mm-hmm. You've no, uh, when someone says that, and I say those things to them, the look on their face or the, the <laughs> pause or silence on the other end of the line, like they don't know what to think. They're like, they've never heard a salesperson That's say right. anything like that. But what I'm doing is inside of me, I'm like, but I could make you happy, right? I, know <laughs> I, I could make you happy. But if I, say, if I say that, now I'm in an argument. I can't argue them into believing they're wrong. I have to respond in a different way. Mm-hmm. So we teach in the book certain frameworks that allow you to manage your emotion, disrupt the expectations of the person that you're dealing with, pull them towards you, and get them to say yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of really solid golden nuggets in this book. And we're going to touch on maybe one of those in a little bit. But 
One thing I want to talk about first, because I think there's a lot of people out there who they're making this really, really one big mistake. And it's essentially a one dimensional approach to sales. And that's golden nugget number three. We're talking about mapping stakeholders. So you have salespeople, you know, they connect with one stakeholder and one stakeholder only. And when someone doesn't truly, you know, identify, qualify, map, engage other people in the account, it leaves them open to risk. It leaves them open to unknown objections that will definitely stall or most likely even kill the deal. So something I found very important and very helpful in the book was one of your frameworks. It was um, the basic acronym. Can you lead us through that and how it helps us map out the potential stakeholders in a deal? Yeah, so you said a couple of things there. So one of the things, that before we go get into basic, let's, sure. let's, you said the unknown objection. So the worst of the worst, for, this is for me as a, you know, this is a, as a sales professional talking to sales professionals. But the worst, most, you know, heartbreaking thing that can happen is that we're, we're, we've advanced to the, to the culmination of the deal. Like we're, we have to decide to make, to do business together. And I get this objection that I didn't know about that comes out of nowhere. Mm. And it, it, it's a, what you call an unknown objection. Those object, those types of objections are almost impossible to get by. Yeah. So if you if you've advanced all the way through the deal and you get this this objection at a left field right when you're about to close, those are almost impossible because you don't have any basis. You don't have you haven't done the discovery. It usually comes from a stakeholder that you weren't even aware of. That's usually where things like that come from. And it puts you in a really bad position. It doesn't mean you can't get past them, but they're very difficult. So it begins with when you're working in your deal, understanding who the people are that you're dealing with. Most salespeople have a tendency because it's easy to be single dimensional. Mm -hmm. So they call in, they're typically looking for the decision maker. They ask someone, are you the decision maker? Which always, <laughs> almost always, the person says, yes, I am, because of something called cognitive dissonance, mm -hmm. right? Because cognitive dissonance says that, that I can't hold two values at the same time. Mm -hmm. So if you ask me if I'm the decision maker, and I tell you no, then it says I'm not important. But because I'm a human being, I feel like I'm important. So I say yes because it makes me feel important, even though I don't need to do that. I just do that. Yeah. Right? So that's what happens when the salesperson's in this untenable position with a person who can't really make a decision. So it's important as a salesperson to understand who you're dealing with. And there's, there's five different stakeholders that you'll meet in any deal. Uh, the first are buyers. And there's two types of buyers. There are buyers who, who have the ability to say yes. So they can give you a verbal, and there are buyers who have the ability to fund the deal. So I'm working on a really, really big deal with a client right now. Uh, and the, the, the project committee, the people that I was working with, so there's a number of stakeholders there, they said yes. I got a verbal, everything was good, but I have to go through contracting and legal to get them to sign the contract. Contracting has the money. So even though I had a relationship with the buyers, if you were going to say yes, I had to build a secondary relationship, and I'm negotiating with contracting in order to get it through. Now I'm able to leverage my 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 yes buyers, my my people who can you know my project buyers. That they're able to push the folks in contracting, but but that that's one of the problems we run into in sales. The next are amplifiers. Amplifiers are the people who are using your product, usually in the organization, um, or who can see problems in the organization, who may not have a decision making process. But they can push up. I love amplifiers because if you can tap into amplifiers, amplifiers push decision makers to make decisions. Then there are seekers. So buyers, amplifiers, seekers. Seekers are people who they gather information. So seekers usually are low level. They typically don't have a lot of 
of say, they come in through inbound marketing forums, they'll make a call in. In my world, for example, I do a lot of keynotes, mm -hmm. so there's a big conference coming up. So the person who is looking for speakers gets their assistant to make phone calls. They call in, and of course, when we say we need to talk to your boss, they say, no, 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 I'm just gathering all the information. You need to go through me because it makes them feel important. Mm -hmm. Seekers are where sales dreams go to die. So you have to be very careful with seekers. Right? Then there are influencers. Influencers are people who have a direct influence on the deal, but they may not be able to say yes, but they're involved. So they're typically sitting on committees and groups. Um, they, have, they have the ear of the boss. Um, and there are three types of influencers that you want to be aware of. There are advocates. These are people who, um, who believe in you. They, they're advocates for your, your company, your product, your system, or even you. There are people who are agnostic. They are, um, they'll go either way. They, they don't really care either way who, what, which, you know, which company they pick or which salesperson they pick. Uh, and sometimes they, they blow with the wind. They, they just want to pick the, the right political thing to say. And then there are naysayers, and naysayers are people who are either have a relationship with your competitor, who don't like you or your product or what have you, and the naysayers are chirping all the time. So with advocates, you want to use advocates to move the process. You want to move your agnostics into advocates by spending time with them, and you want to try to neutralize the naysayers. And this, by the way, is where salespeople get into trouble, is that they go out and they get in a fight with a naysayer. You get in a fight with a naysayer, you lose because a naysayer digs in. So all you want to do is try to, to, to use your advocates to, to, and, your, and your charm right, to, to neutralize your right. folks. And finally, there are coaches and sponsors, and that's the C in basic. And coaches, whenever you're in a big deal, if you're in a big deal that's got a, you know, that's complex and got a mid to long cycle, you really need a coach or sponsor because without that, you don't have any eyeballs. So in those deals, because there's so many moving parts and because people are afraid and because there are going to be objections that are come up, going to come up along the way, what a coach can do is give you that insight, uh, help you understand where the minds are, you know, are laid. And then one of the things I use coaches for early on is, hey, can you walk me through mm some of the things that this naysayer is going to say, what, what are the objections the boss is going to have? So I can sit down with a coach and a coach will then give me, you know, all of these different objections that I need to face. So instead of waiting to the end of the deal and getting blindsided by these objections during discovery, I'm able to ask questions that pull those objections out. And I don't give them the objection. I just let them talk about it. Mm -hmm. Then in my presentation, I'm able to neutralize those objections by answering them early on. So they, so they essentially, they don't necessarily become objections. And, and, and what we're talking about here essentially is, you know, understanding your stakeholders, what's that array look like, and discovery, because it's, this, it's in discovery that most deals are closed, and it's in discovery that you create awareness that the objection exists, and it's in discovery that, that you have the opportunity to bridge to and deal with those objections without them actually being objections. There are more questions than there are objections. And, you know, this is the art and the nuance of selling, right? Mm -hmm. This is what makes our profession so much fun, you know, because if you get this and understand this puzzle, then you're constantly working to shape the deal right. so that the objections don't go away because the very best objection you can get is the one that never comes up. That's right.
That's exactly right. You know, it's funny. I This is one of those things where, and, and it's no offense to anybody out there, but this is what really, for me, defines an amateur to a professional. And when you sit with a professional and you see how they manage, you know, a certain organization, a certain account, and they go through and they have, you know, multiple different stakeholders that, that are in play and they know exactly what this person wants and what this person wants, how this person communicates. That's a true professional because they've done their homework. They've done their due diligence. They've gone and they've talked to more than just one person. But we don't do that because I think it's easy. It's easy to go and talk to one person, think that this person's got your back. When you know, it just it's it's really about for me also risk of or or trying to avoid risk in that account. What happens if that one person wins the lottery, gets hit by a bus, gets laid off? What happens to your account? Well, now you have to scramble afterwards and try to figure out who are the people I need to talk to? Who's the person over here? Who's taking over for this person over here? Don't you think you should have figured that out beforehand? So there's there's so many different elements that come out of this this whole chapter on mapping stakeholders. And I really loved it because to me, this is something that's so important that I want to share with a lot of people because this is, to me is really the the difference between an amateur and somebody who's truly a professional. It's going to help to increase your win ratio. It's going to help you get deals faster. It's going to help you better understand your client. You're going to be able to service them better. There's just so many positives that come from this. And for you not to do it, I think you're crazy. So now let's go to golden nugget number four. A couple golden nuggets left. This one here, I love this one. The three-step prospecting objection turnaround framework. Now, Jeb, you got a really powerful framework here to help people deal with prospecting objections, things that will help them increase the probability of turning a maybe into a yes. And, uh, you know, this to me was, was, was such a game changer. And I really do believe this, but I think that once people truly master this framework, they will gain a level of confidence that will, you know, enable them to take anything that's thrown at them while prospecting. So if you wouldn't mind, lead us through this awesome framework. And if you're out there and cut the crap podcast nation, listen to this right now, get a pen and paper and start writing down this stuff here. It's going to be golden. You're right. It's super powerful and it's simple. I was working with a rep yesterday and I, I taught him this process and he went and got back on the telephone and he came to me about 50 minutes later and he's like, oh my God, that works. He goes, I just can't <laughs> believe that it works. That's right. And that's what most people say. They're like, I just can't believe that it works. Like, they don't believe me when I, when I tell them. So it's LDA. It's let's disrupt and ask. So when you get an objection, especially a prospecting objection, it's happening really, really fast. So you know, essentially you're playing verbal judo at 60 miles an hour mm-hmm. and you get hit by the no and your brain immediately starts to shut down. So early in the, in the, in the book, we, we, we teach you to how, you know, what the science behind objection, the, you know, why did, how it impacts us, the, the neurophysical response to being rejected and the way the brain treats it. And we, we also teach you how to become rejection proof. So we give you some of those, those techniques, mm-hmm. but when you get rejected, um, it, your brain, a little part of your brain called the amygdala, kicks in and it kicks off a neurophysical response called the fight or flight mechanism, which we all know, right? So if, mm-hmm. if you're walking through the woods on a hike, you know, and a bear jumps out on the path, your immediate, you know, response is typically to run. Um, or if the bear was right next to you, you would, you would probably fight the bear mm-hmm. and try to, you know, save your life. And you wouldn't think a lot about it. Your brain doesn't, right. doesn't really consider what to do. It just reacts. So what happens in fight or flight is a ton of adrenaline gets knocked, you know, just pushed out into your bloodstream and blood begins to rush into your muscles. Your heart starts beating faster. Your stomach tightens up. Your sphincters tighten up, which is a good thing if you're running from a bear. Right. <laughs> so, you, you know, all of these things that are happening to you and it happens in an instant. 
Now, you think, well, a, you know, getting an objection is not a bear, but remember we were talking about your, your brain doesn't, doesn't draw the distinction right. between an objection and rejection. It treats it the same. And it treats it the way it would treat it 40,000 years ago when you were living in a cave and you were about to get rejected, which meant you were going to get kicked out of the cave. So all of a sudden it says, oh, my God, we're getting rejected, and this is a threat as well. So whether you're getting a physical threat or a social threat, the same neurophysical response, fight or flight, kicks in. Now, the thing about fight or flight is all the blood is rushing into your, into your muscles to get you ready to respond, and that means that it has to be taken away from non-essential organs. Mm-hmm. One of those non-essential organs is your neocortex. That's the part of your brain that thinks in a rational way. Because it turns out from an evolutionary sense, right, when you're being threatened, thinking is not an asset. Getting out of the way is an asset. This is why when you get one of those objections, especially on the telephone, you, you sometimes say nonsensical things or you know, you're like, ah, 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 you know, you don't know what to say. You know, sometimes you get so scared, you just hang the phone up. Screw this, I'm going on, right? So, you know, so, so the first thing you have to do is you have to, you have to interrupt that response. Mm-hmm. And the way you do that is called a ledge. That's the L in the LDA, ledge disrupt app. The ledge is what neuroscientists call the magic quarter of a second. And all that is, because all of this is happening so quick, is a moment where you trigger or you tell the neocortex, your rational brain, to take over and rise above this neurophysical response that you have no control over that's happening in your body because somebody told you that they're not interested. And to do that, you just, you just say something. You say it every single time. So, for example, when sometimes when I'm calling, and if you've ever made you know, outbound prospecting calls, people will tell you they're busy. I'm busy right now. This is not a good time. That happens all the time. It's, it's, a, it's a, you know, probably one of your top five objections that you get on the telephone. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if someone says, I'm, bi- I'm too busy right now, I say that's exactly why I called. I say it every single time. No matter if everything in my body is shutting down because I'm so afraid, I don't have to think about it. I say that's exactly why I called. That magic quarter of a second triggers my mind, my brain, my rational thinking brain to get in control over this response. And my brain says, hey, folks, whoa, 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 whoa. You're not getting kicked out of the cave. Everything's okay here. This is just some dude on the phone that just told you they're not interested. We know how to handle this. Mm-hmm. So I start off with that. Um, you know, we're, um, I, I just say, you know, that's exactly why I called. Now, a disrupt statement is thinking the same thing. Now, on the other side, you've got a, a person that you're calling on. You're, you know, in person, you know, you walk to their business, to their business mm-hmm. or you've got them on the telephone. Their brain works exactly the same way your brain works, except for in their world, they're focusing on how to ignore you. So the same little mechanism in, in your brain called the amygdala that kicks off the fight or flight response and their brain says, ah, just a salesperson. That's I right. know how to respond to salespeople mm-hmm. because the brain is a pattern monster. The brain takes all of these bits of information that you see everywhere you are and, and, and it looks at things that look the same. And if it looks the same, it ignores those things mm-hmm. because the brain's job is to keep you alive and the brain is lazy. It only pays attention to anomalies. So what happens for most salespeople is when they get an objection, they say exactly the same crap that every other salesperson says. You know, mm-hmm. they try to argue the person into believing they're right. Mm-hmm. You know, the person says, I don't have enough time. They say, well, that's okay. It'll only take five minutes. <laughs> you know, that type of thing. They go, when's the better time to call you? So the person doesn't have to think. They just respond to you in a way. So what we want to do is we want to paint that pattern. We become pattern painters. I, wanted, I want to disrupt the expectations of the person on the, on the, other, side, on the other side of the line or on the other side of the table so that they turn around and pay attention to me. So if you say, look, I'm really too busy right now, Jeff, I say, that's exactly why I called, because I figured you would be. 
Like, nobody says that. Like, nobody <laughs> says, I figured you would be. That's exactly what I call because I figured you would be. And all I want to do is find a time that would be more convenient for you. Mm-hmm. And then you ask. And this is where we fall down on turnarounds and processing objections. It's because, and I see salespeople do this all the time, they do a great disrupt, they do a great ledge, but they don't ask. Mm-hmm. You cannot expect the other person to do your job for you. You have to ask. Mm-hmm. If you don't ask, none of the objection turnarounds in the book work. You have to, if you don't, because they'll go right back to the pattern they were in before. So I say, that's exactly why I called, because I figured you would be. And all I want to do is find a time that's more convenient for you. How about Thursday at 2? Mm-hmm. That turnaround, by the way, is so powerful that sometimes I will say the exact same time I gave them when I asked them the first time and they gave me, before they gave me the objection, and they'll say yes to it. And it's got about a 70% probability of turning around wow. a prospecting objection when someone says, I'm too busy. And what's, what's beautiful about it is watching the faces on salespeople who will go through a short <laughs> workshop with me. And then we'll get on the phone and they'll use that, you know, that turnaround and just watch them go, holy, I'm not going to say that word, holy crap, you know, I can't believe that. Like they just cannot believe that the person said yes, but all we're doing, right, we're we're managing our brain and we're influencing the other person. This is essentially emotional intelligence, right? We just, we're understanding how we're we're interacting with people. Now, some people have, you know, specific and, and special prospecting objections. So in the book, what we ask you to do is like go through and list your top 10, 15 objections, then get down to your top five objections, and then use this same process, lead disrupt ask, to build out your own objection turnarounds. And this is what's really important about prospecting objections. When you're talking about micro-commitment objections, that's advancing your deal, and you're talking mm-hmm. about buying commitment objections, those are much more fluid and specific to the moment. Mm-hmm. But prospecting objections tend to come in the same form pretty much all the time. Because in prospecting, we're asking for time, right? Sales are asking for commitments, two different things. So with prospecting objections in particular, because they're hitting you so hard, so fast, and because of all the uh, disruptive emotions that are happening inside of you, it's super critical that in those moments, that you have your, your turnarounds for your prospecting objections memorized so that you don't have to think. You just respond. You rise above the emotion and you respond. And, and once you get that down, it gets super easy. But it can't be the same crap. It can't be the same dribble. Mm-hmm. It can't be the same patterns that every salesperson uses everywhere for the same type of objections. If you do that, it's just so easy to shut you down. You have to use non-complimentary behavior. You have to rise above your own disruptive emotions to gain control of your emotions, and you have to ask for what you want. And if you do that, let disrupt ask, then your probability of getting people to say yes will go up exponentially. Dropping bombs, Jeb. Dropping bombs. I love that one, man. LDA, like huge takeaway. Cut the crap podcast nation. I hope that you took some notes on that one. Go back over it. Listen to it again because there's a lot there that Jeb just shared with you that could dramatically change your results, especially if you're an SDR out there, if you're responsible for for prospecting calls. I'm telling you, it's such an important framework to put in place for you. So these last two golden nuggets, they kind of got a little bit of a theme. They got the yes theme going on with them. But the first golden nugget I want to cover off here, golden nugget number five, yes has a number. So let's talk about knowing your numbers in sales for a second, because I think there's just too many people out there who give up way too fast on their path to hitting their sales target because they don't realize that sales is governed by numbers. So talk to us about this idea that yes has a number. So 
I, to test this out, uh, and and this I didn't. This wasn't my idea. Um, I, I got this from somebody else. <laughs> I don't know where you're uh, going with this one. <laughs> I, but I, I I went out. I went to Manhattan, and I have a I've got a camera person because of my profession who travels with me pretty much all the time. So if you hang, you know, if you watch me out there, you see all the videos that I shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are you know are amateur because the person who's traveled with me is not a camera person. But usually mm-hmm. I have a camera person traveling with me. And we hopped on an airplane and went up to New York City, and we asked people to sing Mary Had a Little Lamb. We just went on the streets. Like we went to Times Square. We went, we went down Fifth Avenue. We said, you know, sing Mary Had a Little Lamb. And just to see how, how many people we'd have to ask in order to get somebody to say yes. It turned out that our yes number in that particular situation was 11. If we asked 11 people, we would usually get one person to say yes to us. Nice. So our ratio is 11 to 1. So you're exactly right. Sales is governed by numbers. So is sports, by the way. If you went to a professional athlete and asked them what their numbers were, asked them what their stats were, they would be able to tell you. Totally. They would tell you because that's how they make their money. They made their money on the numbers. So the same thing with sales. Yes, there's a number. And for a salesperson, a simple thing is if you ask enough times, somebody's going to tell you yes. I mean, that's an easy thing. So mm-hmm. one way you can look at it is give me a thousand you know, names, and I'm going to call a thousand names, and I'm just going to ask them how many people would say yes. I ran through this exercise with a company yesterday. I sat down with them and said, okay, if you had 100 leads and you called them and you just asked, can we set up a demo, how many would say yes? Mm -hmm. And the consensus number was two. Hmm. Now, we need to get five, right? So we need five. But two of them we're going to get just because we asked. That's the rule of thirds, right? The rule of thirds says that a third of the people you ask will just say yes because you asked. A third of those people are going to say no, and it means no, and they're never going to say yes to you. And about a third of them are toss-ups, or the maybes, right? Mm-hmm. And the maybes are the ones where we have to be able to get past the objections. The maybes are the ones that we have better messaging that turns them around. So when we started looking at the yes number, we know the yes number is two, but we need the yes number to be five, five percent. Mm-hmm. Five out of 100 will set up a demo with us. Mm-hmm. So then we have to start looking at, okay, how do we bend that yes number? What are we doing to put that in our, you know, move that in our favor? So then we start looking at the entire funnel from – you know, the type of leads that I'm calling the, the you know, the, you know, I'd say, uh, you know, a phone call to a discovery call, discovery call to a demo or presentation. Mm-hmm. But we go all the way through the funnel and the it's a pretty I, I, I love this chapter. It's my favorite chapter in the book mm-hmm. and, and because I just I love the intensity of it. And it's going to be different from everyone. But you have to realize that, you know, that if you want someone to say yes to you sometimes. Right. It's you just have to chase them down. I mean, I, I, there, I tell a story in the book about a, uh, a company that I sold um, early in my in my sales career. My, it must be in my late twenties. It was a company called Fujifilm, mm-hmm. and I was uh, I I knew when their contract was up with my competitor, and I knew that I had a window of opportunity with them that was going to close if they re, if they re-signed with my competitor. And because I'd been prospecting ahead of time, I'd done my qualification. I knew exactly when to get in contact with them. So when my CRM popped up and says, hey, it's time to get in contact with these folks, I started calling. And I knew the person I needed to call. And um, so I called, and, you know, and there was a buyer there. And this was a big place to where Fujifilm's location was. You know, I couldn't just walk in to their lobby because they had a guard who had a gun hmm. who shot salespeople. So <laughs> I didn't want to get shot. So the only way I could get in was to call them. And when I called, I left a voicemail. And then the next day, I called and left another voicemail. And the next day, I called and left another voicemail. And I left 52 voicemails in a row. Every day, I called 52 times. And then on the 53rd day, Sam calls me up and says, are you ever going to stop calling me? And I went, not until you meet with me. And he gave me a meeting. 
and that was it. But my number for for him was fifty two. You know, it had mm-hmm. that number, and people and people hear the story and go, "You're you know, you're crazy. How could you call somebody fifty two times in a row?" You know, that's stalking. Mm-hmm. And I'll, by the way, I loved him the exact same message every single day. I didn't change the message every day. I was in the same message. Hmm. Why? Well, I wouldn't do that to someone I didn't know, and I wouldn't do that if I didn't know there was a window of opportunity. But I knew that if I didn't get him to say yes, and the window of opportunity closed, and he signed with my competitor, it would be five more years before I'd have an opportunity to get in there. So for every salesperson, for every prospect, for every situation, wherever you are, yes has a number. Hmm. You're going to have to get – and by the way, you're going to get told no more than you're going to get told yes. That's how it works. But but you have to figure out what that is, and you have to know that, and you have to under, understand that. You know, from I call you know from 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 I, I love Moneyball, but what what is you know what is your Moneyball? So for me, for most salespeople, Moneyball is how many brand new first time appointments are you setting and going to? Like, because if, if you're going to a bunch of brand new first time appointments. It's a pretty good indication that you're putting people in your pipe, and if you're putting mm-hmm. people in your pipe, it's a pretty good indication that some people are going to go out on the other side of your pipe. Mm-hmm. Then we can start pulling the levers. We can work on nuance, objection handling, discovery, the questions you're asked. We can pull those levers mm-hmm. all the way down the, 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 um, the, the, the conversion funnel until we optimize your yes number. Because if you think about it, right, it's just a basic formula. You, 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 you want to, to ask as many times as possible, right? To get as many yeses as possible. That's right. And 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 what you want to do is you want you want to be able to get as many yeses as possible without reducing the number of times you ask. Mm-hmm. So I want to get as many asks as I possibly can in the shortest amount of time, without reducing the number of times I ask to increase the number of times I get yes. And that's really where objections really comes into play, mm-hmm. because objections is the part in the middle that you begin getting good at, so that when you ask someone and they tell you no, you're able to quickly convert them into a yes. Mm-hmm. Simple. That's exactly right, man. It's exactly right. I'm glad you found that this chapter was one of the more one of your more, your more favorite chapters because a really good chapter to me as well. And this whole idea that yes has a number. And you know, I have a very similar story that I've told multiple, multiple times before that, you know, all of you out there in Cut the Crap Podcast Nation know the person I called about 72 times before. But you know, it's it's this idea that persistence is so important and you truly have to believe in what you're doing is the right thing. And I think there's a difference between people who who, who give up too easily and people who persist because they truly believe in something, which really leads us to this last golden nugget, golden nugget number six. And I really want to end this episode on an inspirational note. So we're going to talk about the relentless pursuit of yes. This is something that one of my early mentors, Chet Holmes, taught me about. You know, I reached out to him 72 times because when I was younger, I wanted him to mentor me. And it took me, you know, a number of phone calls, emails, direct mailers. You know, I sent him a coconut in the mail that said, you know, Chet, you're one tough nut to crack. Give me a call back. You know, and he believes in this thing called pig-headed determination, persistence, building resilience, all the same things that you talk about, Jeb. So, you know, these things like persistence, pig-headed determination, resilience, you need these to win in sales and in life. But it comes down to a mindset, a mindset that salespeople need to have to win. So talk to us about this mindset. And when you do, maybe help crystallize this point with a story uh, about a fellow with a hammer and a nail that you call Stephen. <laughs> Yeah, well, like, we'll we'll start there. You just Stephen was a teacher, and he's working in this school, and you know he he'd, uh, he'd he was married, had two kids, and he'd been through a bunch of jobs, bad bosses, and he finally um, sort of put his dream aside, and he he started teaching, hmm. and 
he didn't like you know completely put his dream aside, but he had gotten harder and harder for him. Mm-hmm. And you know, no matter how he'd gone to college, he'd done all this work, and but he you know he's in that situation that a lot of people find themselves in, where he still couldn't make ends meet. That's right. And there were times when he was making a decision between buying food, paying rent, and buying the medicine that his that his kids needed. And 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 even though you know he had you know started off early on with his dream to be this this you know this writer, hmm. um, it had sort of kind of fallen into a situation where he was like so many people where you know, he was just going through life and it was not the life that he had dreamed of. And and it was funny when you look back on his life and he was 14 years old and he first started writing he had put a a nail in the wall because he started getting rejection letters and if you're a writer or an author. Um, you're going to get a lot of rejection letters. And, and let me tell you something, when you get a rejection letter as an author, it really hurts because mm-hmm. it's so personal. And by the time he was 16, he had sent so many of these letters out that he had to take the nail out because he couldn't hold the letters in, and he put this big <laughs> spike in, and he kept on going. But by the time we find you know, Stephen at school, teaching in, in the school, living in a trailer, driving a crappy car, um, wife, two kids, just struggling everything to make ends meet, you know, he's just at the end of his rope, and, and truly he was about to give up. Hmm. And w- one of the, you know, one of the cool things about this story that I love so much is, you know, the shock that he, that he, that he felt when, after getting called to the office over the intercom, you know, he walks into the, office, the principal's office, and his wife is standing there. And you can imagine that, if, you know, if, if you're, like, going through your day, and you get called over the intercom at work, or someone, you know, sends you a, you know, a text message mm-hmm. at work and says, you know, come to the boss's office, and you walk in there, and your spouse is sitting there. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't think good things. You oh, think, yeah. holy crap, what is wrong, <laughs> right? right? So, so he sees his wife sitting there, and, 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 you know, the look on her face, and, and, and he didn't know at that moment that his whole entire world was going to change, because she was holding the acceptance letter for his book, Carrie that, you know, for Stephen King changed everything. And we, you know, we all look back at Stephen King and, and, and people say, you know, God, he's so lucky, he's so this, he's so this, he's so that. And nobody ever looks back at the price that he had to pay to get there. Because this is, you know, this is the thing about, you know, objection and rejection and, and, and what it does to us as human beings, not treating it as a psychological order, treating it as a biological order. Because if we don't disrupt this, what happens is we don't have Stephen King. Stephen right. King kept going and he kept working at it. Because he realized that you had to get through rejection before you were going to get a, you know, That's an right. acceptance. And I, I think that for so many people, the rejection is what holds them back. And there was a there was a article that was in, um, it may have been in the Atlantic. I think it was in the Atlantic, but it may not have been. But I read it a couple of weeks ago, and it was about, um, you know, old people who were, you know, in you know in their 80s and 90s. And they were looking back on their life or they were on their deathbed and they'd been interviewed. And, you know, and, and if you talk to these folks, you know, their regrets are almost always for the things that they were afraid to do, the mm-hmm. things that they were afraid to say, the, the things that they were afraid to go accomplish because they were afraid of rejection. Mm-hmm. And rejection is the one thing that will, you know, it steals your dreams. It takes things away from you. It, it pushes you back. And, and then when we go look at every story, like when you call Chet Holmes 72 times, we look at the stories that, that set us up and, and changed our life. They're almost always the stories where in the face of adversity and pain and, um, and hard work and, and the worst of everything, rejection, you know, the greatest human fear that, that exists for all of us, those stories almost always end with 
that one yes that came That's after right. all of the, the requests, all the rejection. You know, yes has a number. Success has a number. So I love the Stephen King story. I almost can't tell it without break. I mean, it almost makes me cry every time no I kidding, tell the man. story. And maybe that's wow. just because I'm an author and I know what it's like to, you know, to slave over a book and how hard it is and what it takes. But, you know, that story with Stephen King is so powerful mm-hmm. because he was just a regular, everyday dude. You know, everybody, you know, looks at Stephen King as if he's, a, you know, especially in the literary world, as if he's a god, he's a, you know, right. and he makes so much money. But go look at Harry Potter. Go look at, you know, right. J.K. Rowling. She's a billionaire. That book got turned down 12 times before somebody bought it. Mm-hmm. Now, you can imagine if you're the guy who turned it down, <laughs> what <laughs> right. that conversation's going to be like. <laughs> That's right. right? But, but, but if you look like, you know, look at that. I mean, look at, look, the you know, Apple just made a became the first trillion dollar company. Mm-hmm. Steve Jobs went to HP and Atari and offered to do it for free. Right. He he and Steve Wozniak just they just wanted to build their dream, right? And they got <laughs> rejected. So all along the way, everywhere you go, there's somebody there that's going to tell you no, always. And that's just going to happen. We cannot change that fact. The choice is what are you going to do? How are you going to change the way you deal with them so that you can get a yes? Absolutely love that, man. Absolutely love that. That's the ultimate guide for mastering objections, the art and science of getting past no. It's my friend Jeb Blunt. My man, I'm telling you, it's always a pleasure getting you on this show. The energy, the stories, the passion behind what you do, it definitely comes through in this channel. And uh, man, again, it's just such a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, For anybody who wants to get in touch with you, for anyone who wants to pick this book up, what's the best way that they can go ahead, get in touch with you, follow you, see what you're doing? What's the best way they can do that? Absolutely. Well, first thing, if you want the book, go to uh, to Amazon, easy. Go to Barnes and Noble. Mm-hmm. Um, it should be stocked at all in Barnes and Noble. If you're traveling, uh, it's in just about every airport bookstore. Uh, if you're in Canada, I think Indigo Books has got it. Yep. If you're over in the UK or South Africa, it's there. Um, it's we're in the process of having it translated into a bunch of different languages, so um, you might want to check as well. So you know, go pick it up there. If you want an autographed copy, go to my website uh, at sellsgravy.com. And go click on the cell store icon and you can go grab, grab an autograph copy uh, from me. If you want to connect with me, pretty easy. My email is jeb at salesgravy.com. That's J E B at salesgravy.com. You can um, reach at my office at 844 447 3737. And then connect with me at salesgravy.com, my website, jebblunt.com. And by the way, my last name is spelled B L O U N T. Sounds like Blount, pronounced Blunt. Um, so you go to DevBlunt.com. You can check me out there. And then um, absolutely connect with me on social media. So I'm at Twitter, at SalesGravy, Instagram, at SalesGravy, Facebook, at SalesGravy. Uh, you can catch me on uh, YouTube, forward slash SalesGravy. And, uh, and then on uh, LinkedIn, um, which is easy business, uh, you just p- put my name in and send me a connection request. Tell me you know that you heard the, the podcast. And then uh, y'all all shoot uh, Ryan and tell him that you won't be back on because I like coming on this podcast because it's so awesome. <laughs> I love it, man. Hey, again, Jeb, thank you so much, man. It's always a pleasure. And we'll have to get you back on to talk about one of your other future books. And I know this one came in and kind of interrupted one that you're writing. So that next one that you launch, man, we'll have to get you back on talking about that one. Absolutely. That book will be called Ink. It's coming soon. Ooh, nice. little teaser there. Perfect. Can't wait for yeah. it, man. Again, Jeb, thank you so much for making time for myself and for everyone out there in Cut the Crap Podcast Nation. It's a true pleasure. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. 
All right, there we have it. What an awesome interview. Man, I love Jeb Blunt. I got to get him back on this show. Him and I just have such good energy together. But in any case, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. It was solid. I truly love having Jeb on, but especially talking about sales. It's just so much fun. If you love the episode, then please go online, rate and review the show. If you're listening on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, if you're listening on uh, uh, Stitcher, please leave a rating and a review on those sites and uh, make sure you take a screen capture of it, send it to podcast at ryancalajuri.com and I'll make sure you get entered in the draw for a prize. If you're listening on Spotify, SoundCloud, you can't do that, then just send me an email, podcast at ryancalajuri.com. Tell me how much you love the show and I'll make sure you get entered in as well. Also, don't forget to connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that jazz. And you can see what I'm up to throughout the week. And when you connect with me, just say hi. Tell me that you found me through the show. And, of course, all of you out there. I love the fact that every single one of you reach out to me every single week. It's just awesome. I love hearing from you. If you haven't reached out in a little while, just reach out. Tell me you're still listening. And just give me a quick hi. Also, last but not least, go to CutTheCrapPodcast.com and get on the mailing list for the weekly summaries. I know I'm saying weekly. It's been summertime. I've been dogging it on those and whatever. I'm going to get to it eventually. Trust me, I'm going to get to it. And all of you all get those in your inbox very shortly. But uh, make sure you sign up because those are coming out. I've been working on them slowly here and there as summer comes to an end. But man, I'm far behind. I got to get a whole bunch done. It takes up a bunch of time to go back and listen and make sure I'm capturing all those golden nuggets as best as possible. So anyways, go online, sign up for that, and I'll send those out to you when they're ready. All right, my friends, that is a wrap for today. So again, thank you so much for tuning in. Like I say every week, I know there's a lot competing for your attention. So the fact that you make time for me means so much. So thank you so much. I will catch you back here next week when I have a brand new book, brand new golden nuggets to interview with an author. And of course, you know what I'm doing here every single week. Just trying to save you a little bit of time and bring you some information that can spark real change in your life. A fantastic, productive, inspired week, everyone. I love you all. Some days, of course, I'll get tired. Some days, I will get beat up. Some days, I will get knocked down and I will have some bad days. But I will not stop. This isn't punch the clock and go home for the day. Here, there's no such thing as a weekend. This is an everyday gig. Every day is a Monday. And you might not like that. Me, I love it. To me, every day is a beginning. A new day, a new week, a new shot at life. An opportunity to come out of the gate like a man possessed and attack the day without mercy. Today, I'm putting the pressure on. I am the aggressor. I am on the attack. You don't get this far. You don't get to this point and just stop. People that succeed quit quitting when things get hard. Any path you take to get where you want to be, if that place is worthwhile to go, it's going to be hard. Struggle, pain, misery, frustration, those are signs that you are on the right path Nobody that is where you want to be has gotten there without these struggles, without the pain. And if you want to be something great, you are going to have to learn to accept the struggle as part of the recipe.
Every single day, you need to look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, what am I willing to do to get what I want? And if the answer is, whatever the fuck I have to, you'll get there in time. It's necessary you take responsibility for it, that you make it happen, that you don't give up, that you don't take any objection or disappointment or defeats personally, that you keep on keeping on, that you don't decide that I can't make it because you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, that you realize that's a part of the program. See, as long as you breathe, you got a shot at your dream. And here's something you've got to resolve. Not over till I get through. Not over till I get over. Not over till I get what I want. Y'all can't open today, look out. I'm gonna come back and take the hinges off. That's, that's how you gotta do that. You got to have that kind of courage, that type of determination. If you wanna make it happen, it's you. But you've got to take personal responsibility to make it happen. We can point out many things that can make it inconvenient or can slow us down. But ultimately, it's you.